Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and before we start the show, I'd like to share a few words from our sponsor, Advice Media. As a medical professional, you should be focused on fixing people's lives, but as a key decision maker in your practice, you have to figure out how to grow your patient volume, keep up with reviews, and how to stay connected on social. You don't have time for that. You went to med school, not marketing school. Good news, your team at Advice Media did. Their pyramid of success was created for professionals just like you. The pyramid has six stages that, when combined, creates the ideal digital presence. Give them just 30 minutes to consult with you. We would bet you're doing some things really well, and there might be areas where you can improve. Just for spending the time, they'll give you a $60 Amazon gift card. Don't delay booking your demo today. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. That's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. And now we'll start our program. Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm being joined today by two very special guests to discuss the important topic of physician advocacy. Physicians are usually so busy taking care of patients that sometimes we ignore the political aspects of healthcare, leaving the decisions to legislators and policymakers, many of whom do not really understand what it's like to deliver medical care in the trenches. Unfortunately, the old adage, if you're not at the table, you're on the table, is nowhere truer than in the healthcare legislative process. So today I'm joined by two experts to help us understand how physicians can become more effectively involved in advocacy on behalf of our patients and for our profession. Dr. Pervy Parikh is an allergist and immunologist practicing in New York. She's been involved in political advocacy since she was a medical student, and she's also a fellow board member with me of Physicians for Patient Protection. Pervy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And we also have joining us Linda Lambert. She served as the executive director for the New York chapter of the American College of Physicians for over 20 years. And she spent the last several years of her pseudo retirement helping Physicians for Patient Protection build our organization. Linda, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, happy to be here. So I thought we would start out with Dr. Parikh. I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about how you started getting involved with advocacy so early on in your medical training. This podcast is perfect because Linda was there with me from day one where I got bit with the advocacy bug. You know, it's interesting in in undergrad and college when I was at Emory, I was actually considering um, going into law and I was pre-law, pre-med at the same time. And I um, actually got my degree, my bachelor's in political science. And then ultimately, of course, I chose medicine, but I always had that interest of uh, health policy and and how you know laws that are made really impact our patients, um, how physicians can practice just as much as you know what we do in the exam room or the operating room. And so I was looking for opportunities to kind of marry my two interests. And lo and behold, you know sometimes fate intervenes, and I was told about this medical student elective um, with New York American College of Physicians with the New York chapter in Albany, where it sounded exactly what I wanted to do. You know, kind of be an advocacy intern see what goes on, see how doctors can get involved. And, you know, from day one, 
I think I had a jaw dropping experience. You know, Linda took me to Albany and there was a meeting um, regarding naturopath licensure. So there were people from the naturopathic organizations, but also from all of organized medicine. So from American College of Physicians, American College of Surgeons, the radiology group, OBGYN, family uh, physicians, and we were all sitting down and naturopaths wanted licensure. And as a fourth year medical student, you know, I knew what it takes, right, to go through medical school. I knew what it was expected of me to get a residency and then further subspecialize if that's what I had wanted to do. And what I was hearing, I was just shocked, you know, basically naturopaths were asking practice in the same scope as physicians without having to do those USMLEs that I had grueled my way through and was still uh, studying for without having to do the residency, without having to do any fellowship and not to do benign things like so for, to prescribe medications that could potentially harm patients. And even as a medical student who hadn't gone through that postgraduate training, I knew you know, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, thyroid dose, you know, what they and they call that natural, you know, hormones, they tried to include that under their scope, um, that can really hurt someone, you can cause an arrhythmia or, you know, or worse. And, and same thing goes for steroids and a lot of these quote, unquote, natural hormones that they were trying to push into this bill. So I remember speaking up as a medical student, and I was like, I'm like, people will die. And, and the words just kind of came out of my mouth, because I was so shocked. And, and, and at that point, I think the legislators decided, okay, let's just reconsider this. But it, I was shocked at how I became the expert in the room as a fourth year medical student, just with that limited knowledge that I had until then, uh, and how easily laws went through that could potentially harm patients, you know, and so I think that really, one opened my eyes and really sparked my passion that I was like, this is, there's some very harmful things going on. And unfortunately, you know, physicians aren't involved, um, you know, our representatives can only say so much, but I, as a medical student, being in the trenches, when I spoke up, it had so much weight. And I was shocked at how much weight my words had. And that's where why I got involved and why I'm still involved. That's such an amazing story. And I don't think, I don't know if it would have happened that way if you hadn't had an expert that was guiding you through the process. And that was Linda Lambert. So Linda, you were there during this experience. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and, and what your experience has been in mentoring young physicians, medical students, and practicing physicians? Absolutely. And, and let me first add to the intro is I also was a registered lobbyist in Albany. So I was boots on the ground besides being the executive director. I was the person who who was registered and responsible for the lobbying for not only the chapter, but when I worked for the Medical Society. I've given over a hundred grand rounds, most of them CME accredited, talking about this very subject. So this is near and dear to my heart. We created that advocacy internship under my time because we really felt we needed to get physicians involved much earlier in their career. When you get to mid-career, you're so busy, you know, with your practice, you're out of, of training, you're trying to start up. You're trying to make a living. You start to grow a family and advocacy just kind of doesn't hit the radar screen. And so we really wanted to reach the medical students and the residents in training. And I, I have to say it was a phenomenal program. I think I mentored a little bit more than 40 residents and students through the time. But I spent 30 years in Albany building a relationship 
and maintaining credibility by being really truthful and honest. We would go into the health chair's office and I would agree that we would have to disagree on certain subjects. And we would just not go there because I wasn't about to change the position of the organization or my own as we were there and neither were they. So we went on to things that we could achieve mutually. And that took years to build that kind of trust. But you don't have to have years to build that kind of trust to be really effective as a physician. This program that you had, the internship, what was it like a month or how long was it? It was four weeks and all the interns were expected to come to Albany. We did research in the office on issues, picked out some of the top priorities or took on one of the ones that were the issue of the day. And in Curvy's case, it happened to be the issue of her first day. And I said, well, heck, let's just throw her in feet first and walked her up the hill, got her sitting at the meeting. And literally as the only medical person in that room at that time, even though we had all these other organizations that were involved in this bill over the over the time, Curvy was the only one that day against advocates from naturopathy and everywhere else and really staff that didn't know much. So the program was boots on the ground, up the hill, meeting legislators, learning how to do it, learning how to read a bill. I mean, that's in and of itself an art form. And it takes a little time to do that. And exposing them to everything about advocacy, not just lobbying, but meeting with the health department, meeting with insurance company representatives. All of these things have an impact on practice that ultimately make their way to advocacy. And it's important to know that. As far as you know, are there these type of programs in a lot of other states or do you know much about it? We did in New York. I know some of the national organizations have them in Washington, but I don't know that there are very many states that have programs in their state societies. It sounds like a really good thing to talk to your state medical society about and find out if they have a program or if not, maybe there's one that could be created. I know here in Florida, we have doctor of the day in which during the legislative season, physicians can go and spend a day and you're the actually the physician for the Senate and the House. I know that some faculty members take medical students and residents to do that, and that's a really good experience. What are some other ways that doctors can start to learn about advocacy and start to take steps towards this, whether they're in medical school, residency, or even practicing? One thing I would recommend is for everyone to, because I kind of was looking for this type of elective, right? And this type of education. The issue is most doctors have no clue that this is going on. And I probably would not have either if I hadn't been involved in this internship because we're so trained on the medical aspect of things that I think there's a big paucity in medical education on advocacy and it actually impacts our career, I would say just as much, if not more. I know the AMA has an advocacy track and they have ways to get people involved. And Linda mentioned there's various state societies, but it's not well known for some reason. And I know this was one of the things that we were going to talk about later and I'll just bring it up briefly, but I think this is why doctors are not as effective as nurses or some of our other healthcare colleagues because it's not built into our education and where it is as it is built into the education uh, for other healthcare professions. You know, like it's a class, you know, this is, a, you know, in a one month elective, you're just hitting the surface of things, you know, you really, I think, need a lot more time dedicated to learn the whole process and to really see how much of an impact that you can make. Because I think a lot of physicians also shy away from it because they think, oh, well, you know, my voice will matter. But I can tell you as a medical student, I had my voice mattered more than anyone in that room, which was also shocking to me. I was like, oh, all it takes is showing up and you can do so much for your patients that way. 
You know, I think it really takes someone that's willing to show you the ropes, just like with what Linda did with you. And for me, the American Academy of Family Physicians had a government or legislative conference in Washington, D.C. some years ago. And I just thought it was interesting. So I signed up, even though I wasn't, you know, on the board or anything in any kind of leadership position, I just went and I met a couple of physicians who had done it a few years before, and I had never done it before. So I was kind of scared, like, what's it like to go and talk to legislators? And in fact, most of the time, you're just talking to the legislative aides, but even that is kind of intimidating or finding your way around the the buildings on the Hill. And, you know, that's very, uh, I don't know, for me, I was kind of intimidated by it. But then I went the first year and I had my senior physicians, kind of like being an intern and having a senior doctor go with me tell me, okay, this is how we talk to them. These are the talking points. And then after doing that a few times, you do get your confidence. And then the next time I went, you know, a year or two later, I was the one teaching the person behind me, like, here's how you do it. So it's kind of amazing. And it's very empowering, I would say to, to be able to do that. So what are some tips that you would give to doctors that maybe are just starting out and want to start developing relationships, maybe with their own personal legislator? That's probably a really good place to start, right? Yeah, I mean, and Linda can even speak to more than I can. But, you know, as a constituent, you have a lot of power, right? Because you're the one who's responsible for hiring and firing this legislator. So all it takes is a phone call or even showing up to their office. And and they kind of they have to make time for you, whether it's the legislator or their aide. Because as your representative, they're supposed to be representing you and and they can't really turn you away. I think that's another thing people get intimidated by. They're like, oh, these politicians, these senators, Congress people, they're so powerful. But no, they're only powerful because of you and I, right? And especially if you live in their district and vote for them, trust me, you have a lot of power. And, And those relationships need to be made early on, I would say. You know, it's hard in the 11th hour, 12th hour, even though I've been guilty of it. To introduce yourself and then say, okay, but I have these 10 asks now, you know, it's always best if you have an ongoing relationship and your local medical society can help you with that too. If you don't know where to start, have those ongoing relationships so that when these issues come up, they remember you or their staffer remembers you. But I'm sure Linda can speak much more to that, but it's just my own personal experience. Yeah. So, you know, there's basics. Get to know the legislator before you even meet them. Look up their bio, see what committees they serve on. Find out who's the chair of the health committee. We're only going to talk about health tonight, but there's a lot of others like education and and things like that that actually crop over into medicine. Look up how they voted in the past on the types of bills that you're interested in. And that's all public record. It's easy to find that. You just click on that state and that senator or assembly person and how they voted and it pops right up. You mentioned, Rebecca, a few minutes ago about legislative aides. I can't tell you enough how important legislative aides are. I started out my career by getting to know the aide for one of my local assemblymen. And that assemblyman ended up going up to become a senator. And then that senator ended up becoming the governor. And I had such access because I started befriending and supporting and being a resource for the legislative aid. So don't ever feel that you're being neglected or put aside. Aides almost know more than the legislators do because their job is to do the data and the research and get that to the legislator for for him to make or her to make an opinion. So I can't speak enough about the importance of working with aides. Building relationships in the district Kirby mentioned. I think the other thing I would say is people tend to get very polarized over 
politics and advocacy. And my advice is to stay away from that polarization. You're there to actually fight for your patients. You are there to really help them understand what's best for healthcare. And it's not Democratic or Republican. It, it, it's about healthcare. And so my best advice there is to stay away from that discussion. I can tell you in Washington more than in New York, we'd get into an issue and somebody would say, well, we're never going to move that out of the other side. You know what they do, blah, blah, blah. And I would not have that. I would say, you know what? That's not going to help us at all. Let's talk about what we can do. And, and you just continue to move the conversation in the positive direction about the issue and the patient's. I think that's so right. And it's hard though, because we do get, I I know I do, I get kind of emotional and kind of impassioned trying to keep that a little bit toned down and just being more factual and of course being respectful. But I think what's just so important is just that we're present and we are there to advocate on behalf of our patients and on behalf of our profession, because what I've learned is legislators are not always as informed about the issues that are important to us as we think that they should be. And I guess it kind of makes sense because when I was in DC and I was going around with my group, the legislators were also seeing lots of other people. So right before we were going, someone was going to talk about, you know, fracking or somebody was going to talk about water quality and somebody else was going to talk about some agricultural issue. So there are so many different aspects of the world and politics that these uh, legislators are are hearing about and that they need to know about. And basically what they know comes from the people that they interact with. So if all they're hearing is testimony or information from, say, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, or whomever, naturopaths, and no doctor comes in there, then how would they really know? They only really know what they hear, what research they do. So would would you say that just showing up and being present is just a big part of it? Yeah, I, I would say it's the most important part because as you mentioned, they don't know what they don't know, right? And often uh, the loudest voice gets their agenda through. And if we're not even there because we're taking care of our patients or busy, uh, you know, then w- like you said earlier on, if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, you get disregarded. So I think showing up would be is the most important thing you can do and education too, because you know, they're making decisions about very important things, but they don't understand how the medical system and medical training works. So one example that I was surprised about is that, you know, majority of them aren't physicians, many of them are attorneys by training or other things. And they're like, Oh, okay, well, if we want more lawyers, we create more law schools. So if there's a doctor shortage, let's just create more medical schools. And that's actually what happened. They increased medical schools, but they didn't increase residencies, you know? And so now all of these medical graduates still can't practice. Now we have more doctors, but they're sitting at home. And I remember going with a group and it may have actually even been the ACP to expand the GME spots. And we said that very thing. We're like, well, the doctors can't practice without residency training. And believe it or not, many of the legislators did not know that which I was surprised about because I, you assume everybody knows that, but they really don't. You know, I think medical training, unless you're the one going through it or you have a family member going through it, you may not really understand what it really entails. Yeah. And I think maybe also putting it in terms that they can understand a little bit too, because, you know, if you haven't gone through what we have, it is hard to know. But for example, in the case of non-physician practitioners, talking to a lawyer that's a legislator and saying, well, this would be like letting the paralegal 
basically practice law and that would resonate. Or also, for example, I was talking to someone about board exams and maintenance of certification. And I said, when you pass the bar, do you have to take the exam again every seven to 10 years? And they said, no, that would be crazy. (laughs) So maybe trying to find some commonality to really be able to understand each other might help. Although I think we need definitely more positions in the legislature. And I know that's there's not a whole lot out there. So what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that would be good for physicians? And how could we make that increase? I can tell you hugely, um, there are so few physicians who are active both at the federal level, but even more importantly, at their state. And and the ones that are working at their state level um, or have made it all the way to Congress are certainly really respected when healthcare issues come up. But I can tell you where I come from in in the state of New York, there's not been a single physician in the state legislature. There is a pharmacist now, and there is a dentist, and there are three or four nurses. So those are the voices that get heard when they meet behind closed doors. Those are the voices that get heard when there need to be some nuances made to a bill and the language changes. I mean, those are the people that are making those things happen. So yeah, absolutely do we need. The other point I wanted to make is, you know, sometimes it's not intentional, but legislation can be so poorly drafted unintentionally. The only people that can see the nuances of how that really affects patient care are the physicians when it comes to healthcare. And so that's why I think they need to continue to be involved, whether it's running for office or becoming that resource for legislators that are in their own district. I advise that you do your local ones because that's where you have the most impact. I think there is now a push of more physicians going into politics. There's a lot of groups now emerging because I think physicians are finally realizing that a lot of these healthcare laws, even especially the in the pandemic, were being made with zero, you know, physician involvement. And of course, it affects a lot of lives, millions, as we saw in the last year and a half. But we still have a long ways to go. Because as Linda mentioned, nurses are in politics, pharmacists, dentists, and they're seen as the health experts over the physician. So it's improving, but we still have a long way to go. Tell you a really quick story about the the pharmacist that I worked with, who was on the health committee, and I had gone to a retail pharmacy where there was a minute clinic, and I wasn't going to the clinic; I was going to the retail part of the drugstore. But when I got there and I saw there was absolutely no separation of this clinic from the rest of the store, and garments and sweatshirts and shampoo were all sitting just behind where patients were sitting on little chairs with no no separation whatsoever. So I took a bunch of pictures. I took the kiosk where they checked in. There wasn't even a person there. I took a picture of the television set that showed the patient's name that was up next, which is a violation of HIPAA. So I brought all those pictures home and I showed it to this pharmacist who was on the health committee who happened to own a small pharmacy. So he's always up against the big, big chains anyway. So he wanted every one of those pictures and he was going, he was going to go to town and we were able to push back on any retail clinics for several years. I think that those personal relationships, like you saw that and you said, oh, I think that this person will be very interested. You knew their background. And then you, I think also providing information to our legislators is so important. And there's nothing like a picture, right, to really show something that's of concern. And I do think that our legislators are often receptive to those sort of things. What I've always been told when I've been involved in going to talk to legislators is that telling patient stories and telling our own stories are really powerful 
helpful and really beneficial. It's something that we need to be doing more of. Like it sounds like Pervy, when you were testifying, that's exactly what you did. You said patients are going to be harmed. And really that's the main thing that we're trying to get across with our advocacy is that we're trying to protect our patients. Right. And I think those personal stories go a long way. So I've gone to lobby with patients as well with our allergy subspecialty group. And it's impactful. You know, I think hearing from patients actually moves people more so, right? Because at the end of the day, that's who we're all here for. So it's, it's very it's kind of hard for doctors though, because what I hear from them is like, well, those, these are, this is anecdotal. We need to provide data. We need to provide evidence. And that's really important. But those, you know, cold, hard facts aren't always what sway the emotions of the legislators and of the people. And of course, we have to back up everything we do and say with the data. But when we can actually put a face to that data, I think that's really impactful. Yeah. And when they hear a story of something that happened in their own district, that is really impactful. It suddenly hits home. And if it's something that went wrong, that's what they want to know. And that's what makes the difference. So would both of you say that one of the best ways that physicians can get involved in advocacy is by working with a group? I know that we, of course, we have physicians for patient protection. We don't do a lot of lobbying because there are so many rules, but instead we have, we recommend that our supporters work within their state or specialty society, their medical organization. Is that what you would recommend as well for people that just want to get more involved? I think that's a great place to start because as Linda has said, those societies already have established relationships within either your district or even nationally. And so that's a great starting point, right? You know, why reinvent the wheel if those resources exist and those connections exist, right? That's how you can start making introductions in your own, building your own relationships. So absolutely. Also, those societies are constantly watching legislation so they can tell you what key issues are up, whether it be your state as a, you know, generally for medicine or whether it be unique to your specialty. So I personally am involved in advocacy in both with, you know, medical state societies, as well as my specialty organizations, because then they have different intel. And many times the issues overlap too, you know, like everyone supports increasing GME funding, right? Uh, Regardless of specialty or, or where you live. So I think it's a great place to start, especially because of all the resources. It's one of their avenue and it comes back to being local. There are a lot of coalitions of like-minded other organizations, like the American Heart Association, always aligned with us on cardiology issues and the right. Cancer Society aligned with us on cancer. So even if that's where you are or you get your information from or you work with them, that's another way because they are also very active. And so any alignment with groups, like-minded groups is, is really good. Yeah, that's a great point because a lot of the patient organizations want physician involvement and want the physician voice with them, with their patient voice. So yeah, that's that's a great point as well. Yeah, we work with a lot of senior citizen agencies and going through their agencies, just work with another entity or a group if you can't do it on your own. Pervy, you mentioned about tracking of bills. And I think that is a really important area for our state and local societies because these bills, they're kind of sneaky, aren't they? It seems like you'll think a bill is killed or something died in committee and then all of a sudden it revives. And then like at the last minute, they're hiring testimony. And, you know, how do you get like, for example, here in Florida, Tallahassee is six hours drive from where I live in Southwest Florida. So just being able to all of a sudden be somewhere, that's really hard. And I think that's where these societies are great because they have boots on the ground. They have their lobbyists and people that are right there in the Capitol because 
it's not something that a lot of us can just pick up and do, especially if we're in the middle of a clinic day, right? It's very sneaky. It moves very fast. And often also the societies can help you delegate energy, right? All of us are doing so much. We only have so much time in the day. So they can say, okay, this is something that you do want to focus energy on. This is not because this may not go very far. It doesn't seem like it's picking up steam. And yeah, the, the sneaky nature of it also surprised me a lot because there had been bills that died. Then later we learned that, you know, the language was snuck into an completely unrelated bill. Like it could have been something about children's education and they somehow snuck in a non-physician provider autonomy language. And it's crazy that, you know, this one, that that's allowed and two, at how nuanced and tricky the whole process is. So it's definitely helpful to have those boots on the ground for sure. And they also kind of know about this vaccine, like wheeling and dealing that's going on. Like I didn't really understand a lot of that, but Florida, we did pass autonomous practice for nurse practitioners in primary care here in Florida. And even though we had the FMA worked very, very hard and we had a lot of relationships, it was more of like a wheeling and dealing where nothing could get passed except for unless this issue went through because it was a top priority for the Speaker of the House. And there really just wasn't anything that can be done. And that's one of the things about politics that's really hard for us as physicians to understand is that all these compromises are being made. And and, and sometimes we feel like, they're, no, you can't compromise yeah. on these issues. So that is really challenging. And on that note, I just want to talk about political action committees. I'm on the PAC board in the FMA and very reluctantly, I I know it's important to give money and we have to give money to the the right people so that we maintain relationships and help them get reelected and all these things. But I was so disappointed with the autonomous nurse practice bill that went through here in Florida that I just felt really discouraged. Like we're giving so much money to all these politicians. And then when the time came, they just said, well, you know, we had to do what we had to do. So what are your thoughts when it comes to financial donations? And what's the best way for physicians to use their financial resources to make a difference? I have to tell you, I'm, I have pros and cons. When I worked at the Medical Society, they had a pack. It was great. I went to tons of fundraisers, had an opportunity to schmooze, you know, with those before they got limited in terms of how much money could be spent. But the only thing that PACs actually do is give you the opportunity to have access at times to the legislator. It doesn't change his mind or her mind. It doesn't set the tone for the kind of battle that you're going to face when these backroom deals happen, because quite frankly, it's the leadership in legislatures that are calling those shots and the individual legislators sometimes have no ability. I can't tell you how many times some of our members who did contribute to the PAC would come away furious because a battle was lost or the individual didn't vote the way they expected them to vote. So on the pro side, you do get access. On the con side, it doesn't always work. I think there are other ways other than PACs to influence legislators, attending public hearings, scheduling an invite into either your practice or your hospital of the local legislators so they can actually see how medicine works and how the team actually works and the value of all those team members. Writing letters to the editor are really important and impactful because they are, now you're engaging the rest of the constituents in the district. And again, community forums, lots of people hold these kinds of things where they invite legislators in and you don't have to spend money to go to these things. You go. So there's other options. So I'm, yeah, okay. Packs are good. Packs are fine. They work sometimes. And 
individual action is probably just as important. It seems like the PACs work the best if you're getting in on the ground floor, like helping a legislator get get into positions and then put them into a leadership spot, because you're right, it's the leaders that really set the priorities and really can make things happen. So you've got to develop those relationships early, I guess, is what our PAC board has said. So I'm still doing it, although I think it does hurt when you, especially when you reach in your pocket and you dig deep. But I guess, you know, we need, we could learn something from lawyers because apparently that this is something to them, to them, that's a no brainer. This is just the cost of doing business. Whereas to physicians, it's, you know, we feel it a little more personally, but maybe we, we need to, I don't know, take a little bit more of a clue from them. Right. What, what I was going to say is that I, I agree with Linda and what you said as well, that it is, I have a love hate relationship with the PACs too, but unfortunately the reality is that you do have to pay to play in, in some extent. So Yes, it doesn't guarantee anything, but that access is crucial, right? Because without that access, then how do you have that opportunity to sway those decisions? And if you see like the really powerful lobbies that seem to get away with everything, so insurance companies or pharma or, or any any other very powerful lobby, National Rifle Association, it's uh, money, right? So we don't have that type of organization or that type of structure where we're basically funding to the extent that they are, but they are so powerful, unfortunately, because of their their money, you know, so it's difficult because it's like there are a lot of things you can do outside of money. But unfortunately, I think some some of it you do have to put that money in to at least get the seat at the table. Right. I think that's the reality. Belinda, you mentioned individual uh, areas that we can affect change. What are your thoughts on writing letters, like especially if a bill is coming up? Some people say it really makes a difference. Other people say, you know, maybe the legislators already have their mind made up. What are your thoughts? I think if you're a constituent, if you come from that legislator's region or district or community, it has total impact to write a letter. Letters don't get written anymore. What many organizations are using are these batch emails or, you know, these batch telemessages or texts. And, you know, yes, when they come in, they get counted, bing, 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 but they don't necessarily get read. And that's something that's really important. A letter that comes into a legislator's office gets read by that legislator every time. So yeah, old-fashioned letters, I think absolutely are effective. There are other things that you can do. You can get to know the staff and and connect with them frequently. It's not as intimidating because you often know more than they do on health issues and they are anxious. They're like sponges to get that information in that gives them their background for their research for their issue. And I think you can't underestimate what the opposition is doing. They're doing it too. And yeah, they may have a pact they may not. They may just have harnessed a lot of individuals who are going in to argue for their case. So I think there's basics. Be respectful. Understand time limitations. Don't get upset because you only have 15 minutes. Talk to the staff. Keep your message simple. Try not to get so far afield. And one, one again, from experience tip, don't let them get you off track. Lots of times you can sit in an office and a legislator may or may not agree with your issue. If they agree with you, they're going to tell you right off the bat. If they don't, they're not. They're going to kind of walk around the issue. And suddenly you're down the track on another health issue that's unrelated to what you've been in there for. So you kind of have to be aware to not let that getting you off the track happen. Well, thank you so much. This has been so great talking with you both. It's fantastic advice. To learn more about this topic, I'd encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. We would love for you to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. 
And we, of course, implore you, if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about this and advocate for physician-led care and truth and transparency for healthcare practitioners, we would love for you to join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. You can find us on the web at physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Pervy Parikh and Linda Lambert for joining me tonight. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you. One last thing before we go, remember Advice Media? Don't forget to schedule a consult with them to receive a $60 gift card and strategic insight on what your current digital marketing is doing or not doing for you. Contact Advice Media at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash advice media. <laughs>